Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman, and can you believe it? We are just 11 days away from Rosh Hashanah, and with Rosh Hashanah, we will unveil a new year as we celebrate this fabulous festival of turning a new leaf, beginning new change. And it's tremendous, uh, what we say, with much anticipation, that we get ready for the celebration as we welcome the year five seven eight three, which please God will be filled with meaningful and honey sweet experiences. You know the honey that comes from the bee, although it gives stings, it also has the ability to give all that sweetness. And so the holiday begins at sunset, coming Sunday, the twenty fifth. Of September, and it's two days of celebration. Launch us straight into an emotionally charged spiritual journey that lasts an entire month. The Torah in the book of Vayikra refers to Rosh Hashanah as the first day of the seventh month, and certainly I think that comes at a surprise to many people. What do you mean? Isn't Rosh Hashanah the beginning of the new year? But as we all know, in Jewish tradition, there's a lot to intrigue and perhaps confuse us, which forces one to open the book and to try to study, because we count our months from Nisan, which is the month of our emancipation from slavery, our redemption from our persecution in the land of Egypt, and that's when we begin the count of our year. But nevertheless, far from detracting from Rosh Hashanah's spiritual power. Being the head of the seventh month actually amplifies its vibrancy, because if you notice, the Hebrew word for seven is what? Shavi. That's right. And the truth is, Shavii is not just a number; it is rich in poetic meaning. The word Shavii is closely related to the Hebrew word Sova, which describes feelings of fullness and satiation. And etymologically. This relationship captures the theme of the month. The seventh month of the year is replete with spiritual riches. It beckons us to tap into this extraordinary opportunity to realize the potential that lies ahead. Rosh Hashanah is just the first journey on a, a, the beginning of a voyage, as it leads into a whole transcendental month filled with holidays that take us to a whole new level. We reach the holiness of Yom Kippur, and then the euphoric joy of Sukkot and Simchas Torah, and each holiday presents a unique experience, and each leaves us sated in a distinctive way. And we complete this journey, overflowing, with mental and emotional inspiration to power us through the entire year. And we're therefore, it's time for us to tap into that energy, particularly this year. Because this year is known as a year of Hakel, it's the year which follows the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. It's a year of Hakel, a year of gathering, a year that we amplify the joy, and we get together with each other. We try to inspire one another with the purpose of our existence, if it's not to uplift one another. I thought what I'd do with you today, here on Soul to Soul. Is to perhaps share with you some excerpts of 
messages for the new year that I was reading from the Rebbe that I thought would be of benefit for everyone to hear because you know several times a year the Rebbe would compose a, a, a certain letter that he was addressed to all the people of Israel and as he would write it to the sons and daughters of our people of Israel everywhere and these copies were, dis- were, were distributed, they were dispatched across the globe and so just sharing with you a few quotes from several of the Rebbe's pre-Rosh Hashanah letters that inspired me and I'm sure no doubt will bring inspiration to you as well. Here's one from the early years of his leadership. He says, as we approach the new Jewish year, I take the opportunity to which each and every Jew, the time-honored blessing of a Shana Tova Masuka, a good and sweet year. Says the Rebbe, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year has been set by our Torah to coincide with the anniversary of creation. Not however the first day of creation, but the sixth day, upon which the first human being, Adam and Eve, were created. What's the significance of this day? It was not the case that the Creator introduced yet another creature of somewhat higher stature than those preceding it, much as an animal is superior to vegetable and a vegetable superior to the mineral. Rather, this day marks the arrival of a creature that is incommensurably different from all the others. The human came to recognize the Creator within the creation and then brought all of existence to sense the ever-present godliness, thereby bringing the world to a state of fulfillment, which tells us that when we think about, come to a function, come to an event, this is my own commentary now, is that everything is prepared for us. And in that sense, being the ultimate the, the supreme purpose of the world's existence. Everything else was prepared for us, and therefore we were created last. Now, here's a question that was asked to the Rebbe in 1968. Is Rosh Hashanah in any way compatible with modernity? So here's a, an excerpt from one of the letters. He writes, in our era, there prevails in certain circles a strong tendency of self-assertion and independence, a tendency against subordination to the existing order, against accepting things that have not first been scrutinized and fully approved by one's own intellect, this at first glance would appear to inhibit the acceptance of God's authority. Don't forget this letter is written in the time of the whole hippie movement during Woodstock, late 1960s. Says the Rebbe, the above notwithstanding, God does not demand from humans anything that is beyond their capacity. Because acceptance of God's authority is the essential theme of Rosh Hashanah and the basis for all our actions throughout the year. And this is valid for all times and places. It is certain that also in our times, it is possible and imperative to attain complete acceptance of God's kingship. In fact, there's a special advantage precisely in our time. People not used to consistent independence and not fundamentally affected when they accept God unreservedly for it is nothing new for them to change their mind and alter their position. However, people are not accustomed to subordinating themselves, but are consistently independent in their thinking, should they come to the conviction that they must acknowledge a supreme authority, this conviction permeates them deeply and fundamentally, and they find the strength and to reorient themselves to completely and permanently. So again, here, what the Rebbe is telling us is that when you are in tune with it, when you appreciate God as a blessing in your life, 
You know, beautiful teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, whose birthday it was yesterday, born in 1698. Somebody once asked him, what can we learn from an atheist? After all, that person doesn't believe in God. How can we learn something from them? And the, the Baal Shem Tov's response was, the atheist, when he sees someone in trouble, doesn't say God will help. After all, the atheist doesn't even believe in God. Well, we could learn from the atheist in that perspective. God wants us to help others. You know, others say God helps those who help themselves. We just say God helps those who help others. God gives us the ability, the free choice, the wherewithal. And therefore, we, in truth, it shouldn't just be an intellectual, academic idea of my belief in God, but it should be something of a personal relationship. And then, of course, you appreciate that belief all the more so. Here's another excerpt of a letter from 1978, where he talks about the joy of Teshuvah. It says, the Rebbe, the month before Rosh Hashanah, which we're presently in, the time of Elul, it's a time for Teshuvah, for repentance. During this time, we are invited to return to our true and essential selves and to complete what we overlooked during the past year. Within this month, the 12 days before Rosh Hashanah, which began yesterday, are to be used to rectify the prior 12 months, one day per month. All matters of Torah study and mitzvahs should be performed with true spirit of joy and liveliness. As we are told in Tehillim, you should worship God with joy. This is certainly the case for the mitzvah of teshuva. True, teshuva is inherently linked to a serious self-assessment and deep regret. But this does not negate our joy. Self-assessment and regret are accompanied by the greatest possibility of joy due to God providing us the ability to do teshuva, to, to repent, to return to our true selves in a matter of seconds and assuring us that when we tap into this opportunity, there's no doubt that Almighty God accepts our teshuva because God created us and we are in truth, we just have to tap into that pristine way that God made us. We're all created in, in a good and positive way. We just need to tap into that positivity and let it shine. Here's another letter I want to share an insight from, written in 1986, where he talks about how Rosh Hashanah is not just a Jewish holiday, it's a universal holiday. And he writes, our calling on Rosh Hashanah is to respond to God's appeal. Hashem says, Tamlichuni Aleichem, coronate me as your king, the king of our people, Israel. Following that achievement, we immediately pray for and strive to achieve God's universal kingship rule over the entire world in your glory. As we read in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, we ask Hashem to rule over the entire universe. The purpose of creation is not only that we Jews will serve Hashem, but also the entire world and all of humanity, even all of nature, recognize that the Creator is the ruler of the entire universe. True, the absolute realization of this goal will only happen when Mashiach comes, when everyone will realize this truth. And nevertheless, we have to strive to achieve the utmost in our time. Each individual should inspire and prepare the world around them for the realization of God's sovereignty. And this is achieved to serving as a personal example of one who lives a God-centered life. And through active discussion and activity with those in our general environment. Put simply, we need to publicize and spread awareness of the most basic pillar and critical foundation of all wisdom, that the world has a creator and that the creator intimately controls 
and directs everything in creation. And that each year on Rosh Hashanah, God conducts a day of judgment for us, as well as for all the nations of the world and for each human being individually. So Rosh Hashanah is a day of divine scrutiny in its most extensive and inclusive sense. This is what Rosh Hashanah is actually about. It is our connection to Hashem and it is asking Hashem to rule over us. So the judgment of Rosh Hashanah is not only for the Jewish people, but it's for each individual, for all of humanity. As we look into the month, let's just take a glimpse first at what's to come. This entire month, the month of Elul, is the final month of, call it the expiring Jewish year. It's a time for introspection and contemplation, for an honest reckoning of whatever missed opportunities we may have had, and careful consideration of ways to advance during the coming year. And by doing so, it's not a matter of stating, well, I'm bad. No, no, no. Seize the opportunity to recognize and acknowledge what's good. In fact, in the Parsha we read this week, Kitavo, the Torah portion tells us about a peculiar kind of confession, not the kind that we're used to. Usually confession is something, oh yeah, I'm such a bad person, look at the mistakes I made. In our Parsha, we actually read about confessions that are very positive because we actually have to acknowledge and recognize all the good we do and how much better we can actually become. So this is the time to do that. And the way to rectify these things, just as a body, a person is rectified through, seep, is, is, uh, is, is um, what's the word I'm using, you're looking for, resuscitated through CPR. Well, that's charity, repentance, and prayer. Likewise, we have to recognize that our soul also needs a little bit of CPR, of uh, resuscitation. And that, our sages tell us, is teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. Through charity, prayer, and repentance, we're able to resuscitate our souls, which also could use a little bit of that resus, which no doubt we could always use a way to, to bring ourselves back to life. And that's what the month of El is all about, to focus on how to become the best we are. And when I'm back in a few moments, I'll actually share with you some thoughts about the month of Elul that I think are appropriate when it comes to getting ready for Rosh Hashanah from a paramedic perspective. We'll be right back. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Harry Kiedman. One of the things I like to do on the side is I am a paramedic and over the years, helped out with Hatzalah. And if you are in any way medically inclined, you know that whenever we have a patient who's in cardiac arrest, we know that the only chance of survival for that patient is quality CPR that will give the patient to resuscitate their heart. And I thought that as we approach the new year, we have to remember to awaken our souls, to bring life back into our lives. And especially after two years of all the challenges we faced with COVID, so this is the time to actually do what we can. And you notice when you look at the monitor, when we put our patient onto 12 lead or whatever, you know, onto the ECG monitor, we notice that there's the ups and down. And ab- absolutely, if a patient is flatlined, they're dead. So ups and downs is a part of life when you notice that rhythm. On Yom Kippur, we bang the left side of our chest, right? We're near our heart because we use our closed fist, which, you know, according to, say it's the size of, approximately the size of our heart, and we go at a steady beat against the heart. It's sort of, again, like 
CPR, like some cardiopulmonary resuscitation. A heart, what's the Hebrew word for heart? Lev. And that's a numerical value of 32. And that is actually the quantity that we give for quality CPR, 30 to 2. As if you're doing CPR on our, on our soul. So we have to make sure that the compressions are not just 30 to 2. You want to make sure they're good quality ones to secure life for ourselves, not just to get pulses back. That's not good enough. But there's more. Before a person goes into cardiac arrest, there's a time when they might be sick. And if they're not treated, God forbid they could get worse. They could get, you know, the situation could deteriorate. But if they get treatment early enough, then they won't need to be resuscitated. And that time is now. The month of Elul, the 10 days before Rosh Hashanah, we're at the moments before we could, we need that CPR in ourselves. We have the tools to secure life for ourselves, for our families, for our loved ones. So we have to utilize this time now. We have to secure the treatment through tefillah, through our prayers. We have to grab the cure before, God forbid, you know, it gets any worse. And that's CPR, my friends, as we said. CPR stands for charity, prayer, repentance. As we say in our prayers, teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah. Through charity, prayer, and repentance, we ensure quality CPR for our souls. And then we make sure that we're blessed, please God, with another form of CPR, with abundant blessings of nachas from our children, for our parnasar, our sustenance, and for refua, for health. And this is certainly something this time of the year that we shouldn't ignore, that we need to please God, seize the opportunity to be able to, to, to be actually, to tap into the channel for these types of blessings. And there's no doubt that Hashem will give us the blessings that we need in our lives. So all we need to do is actually to tap into these opportunities and these blessings will come our way. Well, we are looking at the month that's ahead and Rosh Hashanah starts next Sunday, the 25th of September and lasts two days. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve. It's the launch of the human story and on this day, each year, we remind ourselves that God created us in His image to fulfill a critical mission of partnering with Hashem to perfect His creation. And we must think of ways that we can connect and seize this opportunity as we have a whole month ahead. We have the 10 days of repentance where we have the opportunity to do more teshuva and we have our Yom Kippur and then then Sukkot and, and Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. So this is a month filled, it's replete with ways to connect with our Creator and to improve on our relationships with others. Let's talk specifically about Rosh Hashanah observances and customs because we welcome the birth of a new year by doing these things that reconnect us with Hashem. Of course, Yom Tov begins by lighting candles and that marks the onset of the Yom Tov. Those glowing flames generate an atmosphere of reverence that reflects the divine dignity of this day and increases our sensitivity to its sanctity. And this ritual is the privilege of Jewish women and girls. It has survived in an unbroken chain from ancient times and gives us the opportunity to forge this tangible link with our Jewish ancestors and this is an opportunity that each of us has 
And no doubt, of course, if there's no woman in the home, then a man can light the yumt of candles, but seize that opportunity and make sure that you're ready on time to begin your yamtiv that way. Of course, every Shabbos we start also with lighting our candles. On the eve of Rosh Hashanah, it's customary that we bless those around us. We say, L'shana taiva tikasev esechasem, may be inscribed and sealed for a good year. And of course, it's something that's worth uh, learning this, knowing the, the, the messages to give others. It's now is a good time already to start offering blessings to others. And we should never disregard any blessing that a person gives us. Blessings have such great power and potential. We should be blessing. What does it cost to give a blessing to others? And certainly to acknowledge and accept a blessing when it's offered to us. We celebrate Rosh Hashanah with several lavish meals. The traditional, the traditional meal begins with recital of Kiddush over wine and includes challah, fish course, meat or chicken if you're not vegetarian. And make sure you make it the nicest, most beautiful meal. We make sure to sing songs and share all types of, of meaning and inspiration with, with each other. During this meal, is a unique custom that we eat new fruit after Kiddush on the second night. And a new fruit is defined as one that you haven't yet enjoyed since it came into season. We're in a new season now. There's plenty of new delicious fruits to tap into. And this custom is rooted in a halachic, actually an uncertainty about the propriety of reciting the Shachianu blessing at the conclusion of Kiddush on the second night of Rosh Hashanah. And if Jewish law regards the second day of Rosh Hashanah as a continuation of the first day, then the bracha cannot be recited because it was already recited on the previous night. But if the second day is a distinct day of its own, then it deserves a Shech and a blessing. So what's our solution? Is that we find an unquestionable way to recite this bracha by associating the Shechianu with an opportunity of eating a new fruit on Rosh Hashanah. Throughout Rosh Hashanah, we offer many special prayers to, there's this, you know, two general themes, let's say. One is our acceptance of God as a sovereign of the world. Just as perhaps you could say in the United Kingdom this week, Prince Charles was accepted as the new king and ascends the throne. That's just a, a anthropomorphic way for us to relate to Almighty God as our, and our acceptance of Him as King of the world. And of course, our request to Hashem, that God inscribe us all for a good year. And these themes actually blend into each other in a unified synthesis. God desires to be intimately present and felt in our physical experience, and our soul senses God's desire. We're moved to beseech God for material blessing to enable its fulfillment So, we, in order to turn this world into God's home. Now, we might not be conscious of the inner significance to our drive for material success, but if we train ourselves, if you studied yesterday's Tanya, you see that the idea is that what do we need the physical material in our world for? It's in order to utilize it to fulfill our divine purpose and mission in this world. So we could train ourselves to hear the echoes of our soul's footprints and to, to tap into what, what do I want the physical material success and abundance? We want it, of course, so that we could fulfill our divine mission and purpose, what we're here for. And that's why we listen to the shofar. The shofar is a wake-up call. Every holiday has its special mitzvah. It's deserving of special attention. Rosh Hashanah's primary mitzvah 
is to hear the sound of the shofar, which prompts us to reflect on the awesome themes of this day. So as we prepare to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, let us be sure to plan to hear the shofar. Go to shul. It's no more longer COVID. Be there in person both on Monday, the 26th of September, and Tuesday, the 27th of September, the second day of the holiday. And of course, if for whatever reason a person cannot make it to shul to hear the shofar during prayers, then please be in touch with your rabbi. If you live in Santon Central, be in touch with me, and I'll make sure that we could get out to you somewhere or other so you could hear the shofar, you could join us in the park to hear the shofar. Uh, every year we go to the park on the first day of Rosh Hashanah for a custom called Tashlich. We cast away our sins, so to say. It's a popular custom. And we, we go to the Mushroom Park. There's a nice little brook. You go to a pond or if you're out at the, at the beach to the ocean or a well or whatever, any body of, any natural body of water. And we recite a short prayer and the idea, you know, people like to feed the fish, but that's not actually a requirement of the Tashlich ritual. And the idea of Tashlich is that we invoke the words of our prophet, great prophet Mika, whose depiction of God's removing our sins. And it says that God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So we quote this verse and obviously others as well at the side of, the, of, a, of a body of water to remind ourselves and to remind Hashem to eliminate, to remove all of our wrongdoings of the past year. And even though, uh, you know, on on a regular Shabbos, we say that one of the acronyms of Shabbos is Sheina B'Shabbos Tainag, a shlaf on Shabbos is delightful. There's other ways of learning it. Shona means to learn on Shabbos. There's, there's other ways of, of saying it, but even though on a Shabbos, it might be a nice way to celebrate the day of rest, but actually in Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law tells us that in Rosh Hashanah, we make a point of not napping. It's important to use the time constructively by maybe saying extra prayers or Tehillim Psalms, doing more mitzvah, studying Torah, sharing uh, insights, inspiration with our family and friends that they will have a meaningful year ahead because we don't want it to be a, a shlafadik year. We want the year to be a year of tremendous blessing. We want to be alert during um, the year to come and we want to have all the blessings in a revealed way where we're awake to experience it. So let us make sure that on Rosh Hashanah, we stay awake and we seize every opportunity to be alert. Maybe that's why we sound the shofar. Two weeks ago on this show, I talked a little bit about the significance of the shofar, but people asked me to, to recap some of the ideas because we know that the primary mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah is the shofar and we're talking about staying alert. So let's talk about a few of the ideas. If the central Rosh Hashanah observance actually is hearing the shofar, that's the main mitzvah on both days of the holiday. There are many laws actually govern the proper way to observe this mitzvah, which is why we make every effort possible to hear the shofar from someone who is well versed in these laws and who sounds the shofar properly. In fact, our sages, Throughout the ages, they gave us numerous insights into the importance and the deeper meaning of the shofar. All, of course, in addition to the underlying fact that this is God's command, it's a mitzvah in the Torah. And so it's the way to connect to Hashem in this sacred way. Well, we don't want to sleep on Rosh Hashanah. Hopefully the shofar gives us that wake-up call if you need, maybe drink some extra coffee. But Rosh Hashanah is actually a godly decree, but it also serves as an important wake-up call. The shofar sound is saying, 
Wake up, you sleepy ones, from your slumber. Inspect your deeds. Do teshuva. Repent. Remember your Creator. Those who forgot the truth to devote their energies and to other things should instead improve. Look into your soul and find ways to, to polish up, to become better. And that is one of the insights that our sages tell us amongst some others. For example, the coronation. Coronation's a hot topic word these days. Rosh Hashanah marks the, be- the beginning of creation, when God became king over the whole world that God created. And when a king is coronated, they have all types of trumpets and horns that are sounded. We'll, we'll find out the modern day of coronation, uh, perhaps these coming days, when we see how Charles's, King Charles is coronated. But the way we coronate God is through the shofar. And so we make sure to hear the shofar because it reminds us of the scene at Mount Sinai when the Torah was given. It says that then on the third day in the morning, there were thunderclaps and lightning flashes and a heavy cloud on the mountain and an exceedingly loud sound of the shofar. So we remember the shofar. The shofar also reminds us of of the Akedas Yitzchak. Remember that story in the Torah. And we remember the ram's horn with the shofar that that Yitzchak, Isaac, our patriarch, he was willing to be sacrificed on the altar for God. So when we blow the shofar, we're actually reminding God of all the good times, all the virtues of our patriarchs and matriarchs. Our sages tell us a king was out in the forest and lost his way. He asked many people for directions, but no one was able to help him. And when he couldn't figure out his way back, suddenly there was one wise person who he met and recognized the king and helped him find his way. And thanks to his assistance, the king successfully returned to his palace. Well, this parable continues that time passed and a wise man did something wrong in the eyes of the king and the king put him on trial. Before the sentencing, the wise man asked the king for one favor. He said, allow me to wear the same clothing that I wore on the day that I saved you. And you will wear, and you, the king, you'll also wear the clothing that you wore on that day. And so when the king put on those clothes, he remembered the great kindness that this person did for him. He showed him mercy and brought him back to his place, to the palace. And in the same way, the king realized and was reminded of this and expressed mercy to this person and forgave him for his offense. Say our sages, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of have used this metaphor to tell us that the Jewish people, we also, we found favor in God's eyes at the giving of the Torah. We remember the Akedas Yitzchak and God offered us, offered the Torah to all the nations of the world. They didn't want it. Only we accepted the Torah. And therefore, when we're judged, we blow the shofar to invoke the shofar blasts as we did at Mount Sinai. And we arouse God's mercy upon us, reminding of God of our patriarchs and matriarchs, of the good that they did, the virtues that they were deserving. And therefore, we remind Hashem for us as well. The Torah calls Rosh Hashanah Yom Teruah, the day of the shofar blast. And this word refers to the sound actually of weeping, as there's a verse in Judges that tells us where a mother weeps when her son fails to return from battle. So we're unsure whether the teruah refers to long cries or short cries or both. In practice, we sound all the all different. We have three types of blasts with with long, simple blasts of the tekiah before and each and after each sound. 
Because the Torah mentions Teruah three times, we sound each combination of notes three times. In all, during the ceremony before Musaf, we sound 30 blasts. And the final Tekiah is a, called a Tekiah Gedola. It's an extended blast. And perhaps you could say that in that sense, the first Tekiah, it's a long, simple note. And that reflects the first step that we take when embarking in our relationship with God. But after becoming conscious of the distance between where we are and where we should be, our soul cries out to God from its very depths. And this leads to the shvarim, which is the plural for shever, which means broken. And that symbolizes our earnest efforts to serve God while feeling broken. But the word shever is very similar to the Hebrew word sever, which means hope. And this undernote is reflected in the hope for a brighter future that is felt amongst the, when we, when we have the, the breaking apart of our old negative habits. And in that sense, the sobbing around, the, the sobbing sound of the teruah, it signals our movement towards feeling compassion for ourselves. And we realize the godly potential within us is actually, you know, maybe it's constrained or hindered. And this hopefully elicits a feeling of compassion towards ourselves. And that's why we conclude with the final blast of a tekiah, especially the tekiah gedola. God's answer to our efforts. We start with the little, the little small opening on the narrow end of the shofar, but we conclude with a great sound that comes through the wide opening, telling us that we just make our little effort and God will do the rest. And in that sense, of course, the shofar reminds us that our sages tell us, read it in the, the words of the prophet Isaiah, the Hayabayomahu will be on that day when Mashiach comes. Yitaka for Gadal, that a great shofar will be sounded, and all the lost people will be, all those dispersed around the world will come back together. And we pray for that day to happen speedily in our times. We will be right back with some concluding thoughts. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Kai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. And we'll conclude perhaps with just a few stories since we're talking about the regality of the coronation, Prince Charles becoming the new king and the passing of Queen Elizabeth of blessed memory. So perhaps we could share with you a story of Queen Elizabeth, a great story that I think perhaps depicts why it is that now as we approach Rosh Hashanah, we have first Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur. One would think it should be the opposite. Rosh Hashanah is where we coronate God as our king and on Yom Kippur is when we ask for forgiveness. Shouldn't we ask for the forgiveness first, repair the relationship, and only then could we have the coronation where we actually have a repaired relationship that we could reconnect. And if you think about it in our prayers as well, the very same concern might be there. Look at the Amida that we say every day, three times a day. First comes the blessing of Hashivenu, that we ask Hashem, our Father, that God should bring us closer to service, restoring that relationship. And only the second blessing after that, the next blessing is, we ask God to atone us, to forgive us for our sins. You see, maybe in mortal relationships, perhaps where the idea of a mortal king is one of subjugation, of fear, of dread, in the relationship that we have with Almighty God, it is always one of positivity. God wants that relationship with us. God created us and we're indispensable to God's plan in this world. Throughout life sometimes, you know, there are things that perhaps might cover and hinder that relationship between us and Hashem, but this is the time of the year when we work on restoring that relationship. There's a great story that I once heard about 
Queen Elizabeth. There's a rabbi named Mervyn Heyer. He is the director today of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Simon Wiesenthal was a very famous Nazi hunter. And later on in his life, he instituted a center to create more of a vision of tolerance and understanding amongst people to prevent, God forbid, future horrors from happening like the ones he experienced during the Second World War himself. And so Rabbi Heyer was once being honored for all the good work that he does. And he was being honored at Buckingham Palace. And the story goes that he ordered kosher food because after all, most of the people present at this event were not kosher observant. And there in Buckingham Palace, Queen Elizabeth, who was hosting the event, at some stage says to everyone, you know, to break the monotony, let us play some musical chairs. Why doesn't everybody move to another table and experience, meet other people at this event? So everyone gets up to move to another table to sit with others who they haven't previously met. Rabbi Heyer had a little conundrum because he was given the kosher food, and unlike everyone else, all the other guests at this event who could just eat whatever they're served, Rabbi Heyer thought the palace went out of its way to accommodate his dietary requirements. He shouldn't just leave it on the table. He will take it with him to the next table so that he could partake of this event. And so he's walking with his dishes, with his cutlery, and first he is... I don't know if to say accosted, but you know, he's approached by a fellow Jew who was another individual, a barrister who was being honored at that event as well for some of the good work that he was doing. But this man was quite embarrassed that the rabbi is walking with his dishes and cutlery and he says, Rabbi, come on, you don't have to embarrass us with this stereotypical Jew walking with his food and cutlery. Why do you have to do that? Of course, the rabbi explained to him that he's keeping kosher and this is the way it is. You should be doing the same too. Don't give me trouble. Don't give me grief. You should be proudly Jewish. And this man just saw it as an embarrassment. Well, to resolve their little debate, it didn't take too long because Prince Philip himself came forth and asked the rabbi why he's carrying his dishes. The rabbi, instead of being embarrassed, explained to him how grateful he was to be invited to this event and honored to be present there. And he's even more immensely grateful and appreciative of the palace accommodating his kosher dietary requirements. And he explained to Prince Philip all about the laws of kosher and how it works and why he was carrying his dishes. Prince Philip reportedly was so fascinated by this, he calls over his wife. He says, darling, honey, Lilibeth, come listen to this. And there comes Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip talking to the rabbi all about kosher, getting a crash course. The rabbi's explaining to them the significance of the laws of kosher. And while this is taking place, the barrister is also standing there, and he decides to chime in and says to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, you know, I'm also Jewish, to which their response was, then where are your kosher dishes? Of course, I see the story as a very proud reminder about when we are, are true and sincere of, with our Jewish convictions, we're not embarrassed by them in any way then others come to respect us for it as well, as this story illustrates. We'll conclude with one more story. You may have heard it. The story is certainly making its rounds, but I find it so relevant for this time of the year as we approach Rosh Hashanah and certainly as we mark a week since the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. And this story, rather, is more related to her father, King George VI. The story, as I heard it from Rabbi Tuvia Weiss, who was the chief rabbi of Antwerp, and since then also in Jerusalem, the Ede Haredis, Rabbi Weiss, who was probably the same age as the queen, passed away a few months ago, 
in his mid-90s, probably around 96, he described that he was a 12-year-old boy living, I'm assuming, in Czechoslovakia when he was a child, 12 years old, and it was 1938, it was past Kristallnacht. The situation in Europe, as you can imagine, was not very pleasant at that stage. It was gloom, it was dark, it was difficult, and his parents sent him with a note to their rabbi in Pressburg. You see, they knew at that stage they had to make some kind of a, of a change. They wanted to save anyone in their family, and they just wanted the direction, the advice of their rabbi. When young Tuvio Weiss arrived in Pressburg by his rav and presented the letter, the rabbi said to him, there's no time for me to write up a long response for you. Let me tell you, the situation is not as bad as your parents think. It's far worse than that. And this is not a time for one to contemplate how they're going to save their possessions. He says, if there's any way for anybody to get out, they must abandon their possessions. Forget about their property, forget about their business and belongings or any other commitments. Just save your life and your family's lives and get out of here. But I'm afraid, he said, that it's probably even too late for that. But young man, he said to Tuvia, you know, the British have offered to save 1,000 children and I have access to tickets for the kinder transport. I would be delighted to give you one of those coveted tickets and that you can go and start a new chapter of your life in the UK. And please God, if your parents ever make it out of this hellhole, maybe they'll be able to join you. And so young Tavia Weiss was given one of those tickets and a couple of hours to pack his belongings. He came home, wished his parents goodbye, farewell. He asked them even about his bar mitzvah plans and about his tefillin. And they said, they are not yet completed. We'll hopefully get them to you when they're done, when we meet up with you. Well, Tuvia found himself on the train and eventually in the UK where 1,000 children were being placed in different homes and orphanages. Tuvia was lucky enough that sometime later he received a parcel from his parents, which contained his tefillin and a few other prized possessions, which he described as the last communication he ever ever heard from his parents since. But Tuvia described amongst all the kids in this orphanage with him, there were, there were some kids who really missed their families and cried a lot. And there was one particular kid, Beryl Gartner, who always cried. He misses his mom and dad. He was a little bit younger than Tuvia, maybe 11 years old. And any incentive, sweets, toys, whatever they tried to give him, nothing would calm this kid down. Nothing relaxed him. One day, all the kids in the orphanage were told that they should be dressed in their very best the next day because King George is going to visit and wants to see all the children that he was instrumental in saving with the kinder transport. They were told to dress the very best and they were given all the protocols, rules that they needed to know when seeing the king, how to stand in their utmost attention, how to not move out of line. And the day came. They all st stood in a single file line, 500 on each side of the road. And the king's chariot began, came to their street. Everybody was standing in attention. And all of a sudden, one kid, the kid who cried all the time that he missed his mom and dad, jumped the barricade and was running towards the king's chariot. Of course, the security tried to chase after him. They caught him just before he got onto the chariot. 
and they gave him, reprimanded him. They said to him, how dare you do that? You were given the rules and regulations, but it was too late. This kid is shouting and screaming, I want to see my king, I want to see the king. And so King George, hearing this, said, come on, let the sweet boy over. And he welcomed young Beryl onto his chariot, and he sat on the king's lap, and they talked. And Beryl thanked the king for saving him and all these children from the horrors of the Holocaust. But Beryl said to the king, your majesty, your honor, I miss my mom and dad. I miss my brothers and sisters. I miss my family. King George listening to him says, I'm so sorry that you miss them. You're so lucky and privileged to be saved if you know what's going on in the war. And Beryl said, I know, I know, but your honor, I want to ask you, can you please help save the rest of my family? And King George tried to explain to the young boy that Germany and England were at war with each other. There was no way that King George would be able to actually be able to save this young boy's family. And this young boy was insistent, he didn't give up. And he said, but King George, you are the king of Great Britain. Nothing should be impossible for you. To which the king appreciated and wished him well and said, young boy, I'll see what I could do. Cutting a long story short, a few weeks later, Beryl was called into the administrative office of the orphanage and there were his parents. Rabbi Tivio Weiss, who related this story, remember Tivio was a young boy at the same time, he concluded by asking this question. Imagine if Beryl tried to get an appointment with King George from the orphanage to get an appointment in Buckingham Palace. Of course it would be impossible. There's all types of bureaucracy, red tape, and they would just tell him, feel good, be lucky that you are, that you are saved. You want an appointment with the king to save, to rescue the rest of your family. But no, he seized the opportunity when the king was present, when the king came to visit. And metaphorically, Rabbi Weiss explained Hasidic literature tells us this is the time of the year, the month of Elul, as we stand ready for Rosh Hashanah, when the king is in the field. The king is in the field, metaphorically, he's telling us that yes, of course, God is always accessible. You know the song we used to sing as kids? Shem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Up, up, down, down, right, left, all around. Here, there, everywhere. That's where we can be found. God is everywhere. God is always accessible. But there are certain times of the year, like King George is more accessible now, coming by the orphanage, when God is more accessible. And this is a propitious and opportune time in the days preceding Rosh Hashanah, to tap into the energy of the atmosphere, to tap into this opportunity, and to be there with the king. So seize the opportunity, my friends, as we are just 11 days to Rosh Hashanah. Don't hold yourself back. Meet with the king. Ask your requests, and please God, like Beryl's request was granted, and he was so lucky that his family was saved, and a whole generation and generations to come by all those who were rescued in that particular mission. Think about whatever requests, whatever wish you have to ask of the King of all kings, Hashem, and God will grant all of your wishes. Wishing everyone a good Shabbos and a Ksiva Vachasimatova. All the best.